today on The Lab Report. Lots going on out there in the world of infectious diseases. Yeah, and all this uncertainty, I think it's a bit more than we can handle. So you know what we should do? What should we do? We need some specialists. Let's call in the smartest people we know. Let's do that. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hello, Patty Devers. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I'm very thankful for that. Good. Good to be thankful. Yeah. Good to be thankful. We're coming to you with a special edition lab report. That's right. Why are we doing that? Well, I think because we're, we're living in some pretty uncertain times and there are a lot of nervous and scared people out there. Yeah. Um, speaking I'm nervous of, and scared yeah. by nature. I know you are. But, I'm generally that way. But that being said, the coronavirus really has people scared. And yes. we're a laboratory company, a medical laboratory company, and we're doctors. And we felt like we just needed to address this. So hence the special edition of the lab report. Yeah, I like it. That's a good idea. One problem. Go ahead. Is that neither you or I know a whole lot about the coronavirus. Yeah, we know stuff, but we're not infectious disease specialists. Yeah, we know enough to to probably not be able to speak well on the subject. The one thing we do not want to do in this uncertain time is to give wrong information. Correct. We always want to give things that are factual, which is why we're going to bring in some very special guests today. Yes, some very special guests who actually are going to know a lot more about the coronavirus, about immunology, about what we can know so far, and uh, just uh, their individual expertises. So we're going to parlay that information onto you. Parlay. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Relay that information to you. Well, I think we can start with a very special guest who I'm shocked we haven't had on the podcast as of yet, Dr. Amy Peacebrewer, who happens to be our chief science officer here at Genova Diagnostics, yeah, and who single-handedly represents the amazing, excellent standard by which we are known here at Genova, since her name is on just about every report that comes out of the Asheville branch here at Genova. Yeah, she's got her name on the bottom of those particular reports because she's our lab director. She is. And, you know, I just can't say enough about Dr. Amy Peace Brewer. She's a rock. She's got this impeccable work ethic and the quality standards that she holds, not just herself, but the entire culture of Genova 2 uh, is really it's second to none. And we're just really, really thankful to have her. You know, the other interesting thing is that she's done a lot of work and has a lot of experience in the realm of immunology. So there's really no better person to get to know at this particular time. And I actually like the word you used, the rock. Yeah. You know, because that's how we look at her. She's the rock that holds us together, especially in uncertain times. And in, with all of her expertise, I'm glad we have her to talk to today. Yeah. So let's get to know a Genovian. Yeah. Yay, Dr. Amy Peacebrewer is here. Welcome to the Lab Report. Welcome, Dr. Peacebrewer. Thank you. We're so excited. I can't believe we haven't had you on after all these episodes we've done no. with who you are and what you mean to Genova. It does seem a little, it little is, silly it's that odd, we right? didn't yeah, it's do odd. this quicker, sooner. But this is an important episode, which I think lends itself to meeting Dr. Amy Peacebrewer for the first time. Yes. So with that, maybe you can tell our audience a little bit about 
your training and your time here at Genova Diagnostics and what that means to you. Well, I joined the company in coming up this May. It will be 18 years ago. So I have been with Genova quite a long period of time. I've worn a number of hats, all of which are associated uh, up until recently with the laboratory aspect here at Genova. And it's been an exciting time. It is a position that, you know, whenever I tell staff, you know, why I enjoy what I do, part of that comes from the fact that my job's never boring. Um, (laughs) Laboratory is a living, breathing entity. It has opportunities for improvement, opportunities for resolving challenges or solving puzzles that keep those of us, you know, who have agile minds and, and who want to know more about, you know, science and, and clinical application quite busy and, and satisfied. So I have a PhD in microbiology and immunology. So I actually started in the laboratory before I got my PhD. My mother was especially excited uh, way back when to learn that my first job in a laboratory was going to be concentrating HIV virus. So um, she was, you know, tolerant of of my career objectives, uh, let us say, but Mm -hmm. fearful for me nonetheless. Mm -hmm. She's a mom. Um, So I tell the staff, you know, back in the day, whenever PCR was just starting, I was one of those people who, you know, wore the timer around and uh, moved things from, you know, hot water baths to cold water baths before they invented the PCR machine, you know, which Mm -hmm. we know today. So I've kind of seen it grow into what it is today in terms of, you know, the, the very important tool in science that we have for that. So that's been exciting. So virology was an early love for me, given HIV. It was a very unique virus. And then that really inspired me to want to go to grad school. So grad school path took me even further down that into virology. So technically, from a PhD standpoint, it is microbiology and immunology, but a lot of my core work was done with viruses and how they process and present antigen specifically how the body responds to that and how the actual mechanics of that take place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That part was always fascinating to me, a lot of the molecular dynamics. I, I was fascinated by that part of my education when I was doing biology classes, so I can relate to that. But, you know, you talked about the laboratory being kind of a living, breathing entity that never is a dull moment. I imagine mm-hmm. that's especially the case these days and, and, and with what's going on right now. You want to speak a little bit to some of the things that you've, we've done here at Genova to address some of the, the coronavirus concerns that have been out there? Sure. So, you know, one of the unique things is we began as a, a leadership team talking about, you know, what staff are going to be concerned with, those types of things. So, you know, cleaning is always important, you know, decontaminating surfaces, making sure your common areas, you know, are, you know, wiped down very effectively, educating staff on, on how to do that. You know, from a laboratory perspective, you know, we do that daily. You know, there was some concern about, okay, so these samples could be they could have something inside them. Maybe they have COVID-19 in them. You know, how do people know with the asymptomatic challenges that, that you know, we know are in the community at large nowadays? But really, any sample coming into a laboratory, we use standard precautions. And standard precautions in a laboratory mean that we assume everything has an infectious agent inside it, and we handle it with that in mind. So, 
in the laboratory, it's if you ask me where I'd rather be, not only do I love the laboratory and it's and it's my passion, but right now it's the safest place to be because <laughs> all those people are walking around with, you know, gloves, lab coats, mm. face shields, masks, and and they, you know, Clorox, Lysol, every surface, you know, after they, you know, use the areas. So right. um, business as usual. Business right. as usual. So we're well prepared, you know, to you know, handle any specimens, you know, as we always are. And, you know, our staff are very conscious of that. And I think, you know, very calm in their approach to that. Yeah. Yeah. We also, you know, are currently just today launched a brand new upgrade to the GIFX product. Just kind of wondering a little bit of an aside question, but uh, can you speak a little bit, Genova as the industry leader, how long we've been doing stool testing and just how much of that we really have under our belt? We have a lot of that under our belt. So even before I joined the company, and you know that's been like I said over almost over eighteen years now, Genova was in in the stool business. So, you know that is a, a history of bringing things to market. You know that are valuable that clinicians find value in, and doing that in a way that is you know high quality, top notch. When I first joined the company, that was one of the things that I came to work on was to develop new assays. And so that was back in 2002, whenever we first launched the CDSA 2.0. And that was novel in its time. It was way ahead of where where we are today with the microbiome and the tests that are associated with it. And it was very appropriate in terms of how it positions itself for clinical utility. Out of that, you know, came the FDA approval for calprotectin, you know, which to this day is is still revolutionary in terms of how that can be used clinically uh, for IBS, IBD. Genova was the, the first to kind of bring that, educate clinicians about how to do that. So in my career here, it's just been building on that very solid base and core. The number one thing that, that I safeguard that, that I, you know, pride myself on looking after is Genova's commitment to quality and our you know, ability to refine and to craft different assays in a way that clinicians can use those to to really help, you know, treat their patients. People, by the time they, you know, come to clinicians that are within our space uh, are people who are, have complex presentations. Right. And with that, you need to have tools that are able to assess what those issues and concerns may be in terms of a system approach or how I like to think of it is in layers. So what are the layers that are, you know, a part and parcel of this this potential, you know, presentation from a clinical standpoint? And then how do we provide that information in a way that helps the clinician right. find a path for that patient back to health? Right. Responsibly. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of different tests you can run. Yeah. But I think part of what makes Genova the best is finding that clinical utility and, and doing the tests that make sense yeah. to really help a patient. The most accurate test, the most appropriate right. test, and right. utilized with the greatest clinical efficacy. Yeah. Right. 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 The other part of you know the environment that we're currently finding ourselves in is this whole coronavirus, and there's a lot of scared people out there. And Michael and I were talking about how we are not infectious disease specialists. We're not qualified to give information. We we don't want clearly to give inaccurate information. So we come to Dr. Amy Peace Brewer, who happens to be a member and sit on boards at ASM and all of these amazing conferences. And so when we're talking about, you know, what team to get together for a podcast to give us the most accurate information, who do you think we should call amongst your list of friends in your phone? We have the fortune at this company to, and, and I, to work with Dr. Michael Miller. 
Um, he is currently retired, but still very much engaged. He, he's never going to give it up. I, he's he's uh, he's he's been at this for a long time, and he is such a wealth of knowledge. He was the former dean of uh, ASM uh, and worked very well with those organizations and really helped get them established and started. So he has been with Genova as an assistant laboratory director here since before I joined the company. So I've known Mike for uh, more than 18 years. Um, he was actually the person I interviewed with to actually take take this position. Mm-hmm. He knew my mentors. So I originally came from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So I'm a, I'm a Tar Heel. <laughs> and I trained with uh, Dr. Peter Gilligan and Dr. Jim Foltz, um, who are very well known in the field of both microbiology and, and immunology. And so he has worked uh, with both of those over the years and is highly respected in the field. So if there is one person that I can count on whenever things are moving around, let us say, in the infectious disease arena, then it's Mike Miller. Excellent. Great. Let's call him. Yeah, let's, that's a great plug. Let's give him a call. So we have the distinct honor of having Dr. Michael Miller on the podcast with us. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Miller. Dr. Miller is retired from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention after 35 years, where he was the Associate Director for Laboratory Science for the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases. Dr. Miller did his undergraduate work at Northwestern State University in Louisiana and completed his graduate work at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Medical Microbiology, a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology, and former member of the Board of Governors. He is the former dean of the American College of Microbiology, which Amy was just talking about, and he holds clinical laboratory director licenses in several states. Also, he spent 12 years in the Division of Training for the CDC, then 12 years directing reference laboratories. He also led the Laboratory Response Network and was the Chief Science Officer for a major national infectious disease center. He holds several adjunct professorships, he is widely published in textbooks and peer-reviewed literature, and he serves on the editorial board of several journals. Currently, Dr. Miller is the Director of Microbiology Technical Services, LLC. Just thank you so much, Dr. Miller, for Welcome being on the to podcast. The lab report. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Well, what's not covered in the bio that Michael just read about you is the fact that you actually served as an advisor to several U.S. presidents and White House administrations. And in addition to that, Amy was just talking about your long relationship, your close relationship with Genova for many years. Can you talk about how you came to be associated with Genova after an impressive CV, as we have just read? Well, I started with Genova many, many years ago before, I think probably two names ago. (laughs) I don't remember. But um, I own my own consulting business, microbiology consulting business. And and, uh, I had seen Genova mainly because I'm such a a fan of the Asheville, North Carolina area. Hmm. And um, when I uh, investigated with Genova at the time in microbiology, they were interested in, in growing the microbiology department and strengthening it, and I was interested in helping them do that with a real strong science base, and so we just kind of uh, started, and that was, I don't even remember how many years ago it was, but it's been a delightful association um, more than 18. A of <laughs> more than 18, Mike. I've been here and you interviewed me and I'm 18 years in May. So, 
wow, lucky, lucky me. <laughs> lucky you. It ages one or both of us. <laughs> well, let me just say this. I am glad you are where you are, Amy. <laughs> well, thank you. The, uh, the lab is lucky to have you, I'll tell you that. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Dr. Miller, obviously the, the thing on everyone's mind these days is, is coronavirus, and it's kind of why we've had this special podcast that we're doing today. Can you talk a little bit about the virus and how it behaves differently from, say, viruses like the flu or other cold viruses, if, if in fact it does? Oh, sure. You know, there's so much to say here, and probably everyone listening, that's all you get on the news. So there's a lot of information out there that... It's interesting that, you know, this is just after the peak in flu season, and in some places it's still peaking flu season. In comes coronavirus. Now comes the allergy season. We still have the common cold running around in the cooler days. And don't forget there's strep throat and all these kids and everything. So this pot of infections is just unprecedented. So there is a lot of things that need to be evaluated and tested for, and that's kind of what we'd like to talk about today. And let's just kind of separate uh, flu and coronavirus, if we can. Sure. There are both similarities and differences there. But unfortunately, we know a lot less about this new novel coronavirus than we do about flu, but we do know enough that, that we can at least talk about it. For instance, some of the symptoms of flu and coronavirus are exactly the same like a dry cough mm -hmm. uh, and a fever. Both uh, flu and coronavirus has that. The coronavirus more often, however, causes uh, difficulty breathing, which is called shortness of breath, of course, and which is a big sign to seek medical attention. When things get to that point, it's time to seek medical attention. Yeah. The difference with influenza, influenza causes aches and fatigue and headache, chills, the body just feels horrible with uh, aches and pains. So that's a little bit different, um, certainly less common with the coronavirus. Flu symptoms tend to come on very abruptly, like gets worse in a day or two. But with coronavirus, the symptoms may more gradually uh, sneak in on you. But, you know, if you're sneezing, if you have a stuffy or runny nose, you probably just have a common cold. You don't have coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, one, it's just something you have to interestingly realize that that common cold may be caused by a different coronavirus. Right. And there's four or five that are kind of garden variety coronaviruses. Right. There's two things to remember, in my mind, two things to remember here. One is that the coronavirus is much more infectious than the flu. It spreads so much faster. And secondly, coronavirus is more likely to kill than the flu is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are some things uh, we can talk about. So there's also a fundamental difference in how flu and coronavirus kills individuals. With the flu, most of those deaths were caused by secondary bacterial pneumonia uh, and heart attacks that kind of developed after the uh, uh, resistance has been weakened. But with, with coronavirus, most of the deaths are caused by severe lung problems, actually acute respiratory disease syndrome, uh, ARDS, A-R-D-S. Right. 
and that damages the lungs that's already been damaged. So there's similarities and there's differences, but they're uh, pretty pretty stark. Can I can I ask a question there, Dr. Miller? When sure. we're talking about ARDS um, and intubated patients, is it only in patients that have underlying lung disease to begin with, or is there something about, you know, the cytokine release from this virus that actually causes that acute lung damage? Uh, I don't think we know the answer to that question. It's, it's too early. This is a novel, the new virus, and there's a lot about the pathogenicity that we have yet to learn. I will say, though, that as everyone has heard, the risk of a severeness and the risk of death is far higher in elderly patients and especially in elderly patients that have comorbid conditions, uh, diabetes, cancer, those who are on immunotherapy. And there are millions of people in that, in that uh, situation right now. So that's why we are so adamant and careful about following the the suggestions of social distancing. My goodness, right. you protect yourself, but you're also protecting millions, potentially millions of other people. So that's, that's yeah. very important. And, and we, you talked about how it's far more contagious. Is the transmission the same as, say, for example, influenza? Yeah, is there anything unique about how it's transmitted person to person about this particular virus? Well, transmission of um, the coronavirus is primarily respiratory coughing and of course that's one of the symptoms even being close enough to someone who is infected just talking really can create a little aerosol around that patient so the respiratory route is the primary route that's why we take a nasopharyngeal specimen as a specimen of choice for testing for it because we're breathing that organism in right now that said the organism, this virus, can live on surfaces for anywhere from hours to days, depending on what the surface is and what, how the virus is protected. So, and then someone can touch a contaminated surface and then accidentally touch their lips or their nose or their eyes and they have inoculated cells. So there's a lot to think about with this, but that same thing occurs with the common cold, with the flu, uh, you know, you touch your membranes, spatial membranes, eyes, nose, lips, stuff, with hands that have come in contact with this uh, with this virus. So, this is not new. Right. This is old. This is old stuff. Right. We've been we've known this for decades about all the other viruses. So, this is another coronavirus that does the same thing. Right. So, you know, one of the things that I think about, and a lot of the people listening are primary care physicians themselves. And what are some of the current recommendations, guidelines that us as primary care physicians or just physicians in general should be following to stay safe and healthy from COVID-19 as much as possible? Because we're dealing with sick patients every day. So how? what are the guidelines to protect the clinicians? Well, not only are you dealing with patients every day, but you're close to them. Right. So if uh, clinicians have a patient that they know is coming in to see them. And by the way, that's what a that's what a, an individual should actually do. They should call the doctor first. They should call you first. And then you tell them to come in or not to come in. If they are asymptomatic, 
stay home. You know, you're going to be fine. If they have mild symptoms, then probably stay home. You don't need to come in. And those mild symptoms will just, you know, in most cases go away unless that person is highly susceptible. But if you do have to have a patient come in, you should know who that patient is and you should be prepared with standard precaution. And that is with gloves and with masks and eye protection. If you have to take a nasopharyngeal specimen, you're very likely to make that patient sneeze or cough. And that's going to be right in your face if you don't have that protection. If you have a, an area where it is safer to collect such a specimen, then you may want to leave your office and go to that room to do that. I don't know if all practices have that capability. If a person comes in with symptoms, that individual should be given a mask. That's who should be wearing the mask, not the general public, the people who are infected. Mm -hmm. Of course, hand washing constantly, not touching our faces constantly. If you have a separate entrance for patients who are potential coronavirus carriers, you may want to disinfect that area very carefully, you know, three or four times a day, uh, just to be uh, just to help yourself, you know, and to help others know that this is a very clean a room as we can get. So there's no treatment and there's no vaccine. So the only thing we have to protect ourselves is common sense, planning ahead, and having a plan in place for an infected patient to uh, come into the uh, office. You know, it's interesting. Earlier you brought up that that term social distancing, which is kind of a key phrase that we hear in the news. And the social distancing is really an attempt to, quote unquote, flatten the curve. Can you speak to that term flatten the curve? And how can sure. primary care physicians help to, with social distancing, flatten that curve? Sure. Social distancing is a term I'd never heard of <laughs> until right. it came along, you know. When I was told, you know, I guess my definition of social distances was when somebody said, go home and stay home. Mm-hmm. That right, was, right. that's the definition. And that's really what it should be. Go home and stay home. Don't take your kids to the movies. Don't take them to uh, birthday parties or whatever. Don't have, uh, spend the night parties and things like that. Stay away from people until we can flatten this curve. Now, what does that mean? The curve they're talking about is the epidemiology curve. Now, I don't know if I can explain this without having a drawing board, but on a podcast, I'll try to do this. <laughs> most, of you are, most of you are familiar with what an epi curve looks like. It's a, it's a little flat curve initially because there's some background information. Then there's a, a very rapid and tall peak. And then after the peak, there's a rapid decline that goes back down to normal. So you kind of have a, a steep, sharp-pointed mountain there. At the top of that mountain, that is the peak of the epidemic. That's when it is at its worst. And the higher that is, the more people get sick. So our goal is to lower that peak as far down as we can so fewer people get infected. So if this organism is spread 
by being near other people, just by being in groups. It's so easily spread. Then don't go where it can be spread. Stay away from people if possible, at least six feet away. Stay away from groups so that fewer people become infected and the top of that peak begins to come down. And that's what we want to do. We want to to lower the epidemiology curve, flatten the curve by social distancing, keeping away from groups of crowds, and that prevents transmission, or at least it lowers the risk. I have to say we we are not in a containment situation anymore. We're beyond that. Now we're in a situation where we have to uh, actually take this head on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to be able to contain it. It's going to get more than likely. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And that's because um, the numbers are going to show a lot more cases because we are testing a lot more people. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Okay? Now, that may be helpful in one sense because with influenza, the death rate is usually about zero point. One percent, like one person in a thousand, mm-hmm. would be at risk for dying for flu. For coronavirus, that number is higher. It's like three percent in some in some areas. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference between point one percent and three yeah. percent is thirty times. Yeah. So are we going to say, and we can say right now, it looks like coronavirus is 20 to 30 times more deadly than the flu. But that's looking at numbers. Right. Mm. Okay, now let me say this quickly. If we test more people, the denominator is going to get much, much, much larger. Right. And the numerator is still going to stay, stay hopefully close to the same. So... That three percent number may come way down. Right. Who knows? It may come down to one percent or whatever, depending on how many people we can get tested to broaden the what we call the the N number, the number of uh, people in that denominator. Sure, it makes sense. Just a matter of math, right? right? And how many people are being tested? Can I ask a basic question, Dr. Miller? So sure. this, you know, there's testing for the coronavirus. These rapid tests are these antigen tests? Are these like PCR looking for specific strains? How are they testing this? Good question. Well, the only tests that are approved at this point are genetic tests, real-time PCR tests, either based on the uh, initial offering by the Center for Disease Control, which was sent out to the state public health labs. Those test protocols and contents are online on the CDC website. That's the only test right now that our FDA approved through an emergency use authorization, EUA. When a laboratory wants to develop its own test, say for its own patients at a large university hospital or something, they also have to develop the test, go through an extensive validation with in-house, mm-hmm call the FDA and let them know that they have validated their test, they will submit an EUA, an emergency use authorization, which is a six-page report. 
that goes to FDA, but FDA now will allow them to test while the EUA is being evaluated. Mm. Interesting. That the is problem, interesting. though, is that these labs soon run out of supplies. We're already at a worldwide shortage of nasopharyngeal swabs. Hmm. We're at a shortage of uh, viral transport media. So manufacturers are having to gear up much more than they ever dreamed to resupply labs just for the basics we need to do the testing, no matter who does the testing. Right, right. Interesting. Well, I know you've been around a long time, Dr. Miller, and you've seen your share of epidemics and pandemics come and go from H1N1, avian flu, SARS. Where does this compare? I mean, I know you've been involved in various presidential administrations. Like, where does this compare to prior epidemics or pandemics? You know, I'm not sure we know yet. Again, you know, we have a lot to, to learn about this. The, the H1N1 pandemic, which I believe was 2009 to 2010, was an incredibly powerful pandemic that went through the United States. We had millions of people that were infected by that H1N1 virus. The coronavirus, the COVID coronavirus, is a little bit more, a little bit more deadly than the uh, swine flu was. It's more deadly than the seasonal flu, but it's not as bad as SARS was or tuberculosis or Ebola, you know, the, in terms of percent death. Mm -hmm. So we will we'll see this evolve. You know, this is just a couple of three months into this. But if you think about it, you know, just think about this. This is a virus that started in a little spot in China, and in less than two or three months, the entire planet has mm -hmm. been affected. Mm -hmm. That's for that's pretty incredible. Yes. Yeah. So we really have to pay attention to this and get serious about the recommendations. Well, this has been really, really interesting, Dr. Miller. That was all the questions that we had. Is there, is there something that you're thinking about this particular virus that maybe we didn't cover with the questions that we asked? Something that you feel is critically important for our physician group to, to keep in mind with respect to the COVID? Well, I think we've covered most everything. One bit of good news is the uh, children, you know, at least up to the age of 18, doesn't seem to get very sick. In fact, we don't see a lot of sick children. doesn't mean that they are asymptomatic because they can be positive and asymptomatic, I guess, and can transmit the disease, but they just don't get very ill. And that's, that's kind of good news. That's the opposite of the flu. Right. In which the children this year were, during this flu season, were really impacted by the flu. So one other piece of good news here is that virtually 80 to 90 percent of those infected with this virus really have a mild or moderate case or no symptoms at all. So that's really good news. People do die from it. It's very serious. But even at the worst of this coronavirus pandemic, many people are not going to get infected. And of those who do get infected, Probably 99 out of 100 of them are going to recover. So it's responsible to be proactive now 
and to do everything we can to prevent further spread. Great. Great. Thank you for taking the time out of your very busy day to uh, come on with us. I appreciate it. It was an honor. Thanks, Dr. Miller. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. Well, I think that was good to have Dr. Miller on and Dr. Amy Peacebrewer. Really thankful to them for coming on the show and just giving us their thoughts on what's been going on, the uh, coronavirus, COVID infection, and just to have expert opinion. Yeah, it's good to hear it from experts, even though it still comes back to the common sense and, and the normal guidelines of universal precautions. So I think that's just important to reinforce. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening. Hope this has been helpful for you guys out there. We're going to keep plugging away here with more podcasts in the future. And uh, stay tuned. And stay healthy. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net.